we're good to go. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2, looking at the travel arrangements of verses 19 through 30, and focusing specifically on determining the will of God. Paul had a lot of hopes, intentions, things that he was putting plans into place, contingent plans putting into place, and, uh, and yet willing to surrender all of them if uh, the Lord was to make other things clear. And uh, we want to learn these things because we're undergoing a season of testing right now in very similar ways, and uh, we got families that are seeking the will of God for different things, and so it's good to learn these principles and uh, to put them into practice as, uh, as God shows them to us. All right, in preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon His faithfulness. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning and the truth of Your Word and the blessing that is ours to be fixed upon this anchor. Father, Your Word is such an anchor provide such stability. I thank you for the blessings that we have to study, to show ourselves approved, and we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. And in particular, Father, if we're in a season of instability, if we're in a season of uncertainty, if we don't see what it is we want to see, then uh, help us to walk by faith so that we can see uh, by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. So make these, make these scriptures clear to each one of us here this morning. I thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So in Philippians 2.19, we start with a hope. I hope in the Lord Jesus. And then when we get down to um, verse 24, it turns into a trust. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So it opens with hoping in the Lord, and this half of it kind of ends with trusting in the Lord. And then he goes on to discuss Epaphroditus, in the verses that follow. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And uh, there are circumstances in, in life when things are up in the air, when we're trying to figure out what we're doing and where we're going next and what's going to happen after that, and we just don't know because we're finite. We're creatures of time bound by time, and we don't know the Alpha from the Omega, and we just have to walk by faith and trust in the, in the Lord's hands. And then when other things are out of our hands, then we're just kind of stuck, aren't we? And we get stuck with things that then become necessary, that then become have to. And we say, well, at this point, since there's nothing else I can do, this is what I have to do. And you give that to the Lord also in prayer and say, Father, is this what you expect of me? It kind of seems like uh, this, is, this is the last option available. And, uh, and we have language like that in verse 25 when he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And so there's the language of obligation, there's language of necessity, there's language of, of something you just have to do. And you may not want to do it, especially since he has such affection for Epaphroditus and he says uh, the things that he says there about Epaphroditus, especially since he was sick. I mean, goodness, he was sick to the point of death. Is he even well enough to travel? Hope so, because... Uh, Paul's going to put a scroll in his hand and send him back to Philippi. He's the courier for the book of Philippians, and that's going to carry the, the scroll to them as we, uh, as we see it here. And so we'll deal with that as well, and uh, hopefully these things will all come together for us, that we understand uh, that when, we, when we're 
leaving ourselves in the Lord's hands for His wisdom, for His guidance, for His direction, that, uh, that He knows better than we do. He's not going to, we're asking for a loaf of bread, He's not going to give us a stone. We're asking for a fish, He's not going to give us a snake. He knows better than we do. And if He gives us something different than what we're asking for, then it's not going to be a, a stone, it's not going to be a snake, it's going to be something different than what we're asking for, and it's going to be something better than what we're asking for, because it's going to be in His will. It's going to be His design. And that becomes a, a significant thing as well. All right, and so uh, last Wednesday and last Sunday, we've been mainly here lately dealing with main point three, talking about selfishness and how selfishness destroys ministry capacity. And I'm not going to go back over this again, but it, it is verses 20 and 21, and it does spotlight Timothy being unique. Everybody else in the training program still is seeking after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. You've got to have a genuine sanctified worry as a shepherd on behalf of a flock. And uh, we learn that, and we learn uh, who who the gifted communicators are and who the gifted shepherds are. And we find who has that genuine concern and who does not. And we learn that, well, you've got capacity for teaching, but there doesn't seem to be a shepherding capacity, a heart with a compassion and with a sanctified worry that is uh, required for that sort of ministry. And for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And we discussed, besides pastoring, by the way, besides church ministry, any other ministry as well, such as marriage. Marriage is a ministry, right? And uh, understand, is selfishness good for a marriage, or does selfishness destroy a marriage? Okay? All right. Get some uh, premarital counseling in here while we're at it this morning. And uh, any ministry, though, think about it. Think about the ministry pursuits and selfishness just devastates you in uh, Sunday school, in nursery, in janitorial. I don't care what it is. If, you're, if selfishness is your motivation, then you're not bearing fruit. Even if you, uh, you know, dump 20 trash cans or change 50 diapers, if selfishness is your motivation, all you're stacking up is wood, hand, stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. And it is destructive. Selfishness destroys ministry capacity. And so uh, we have the principles there. All right. Now I want to move on this morning and I want to talk about faith because I think there's some broad principles here that maybe aren't explicit in this text, but they're definitely implicit. And I think they come across as we we unfold it here. And it's really, it's point four where we're going to talk about faith. And uh, with all of these uh, hopes that he has to send Timothy he kind of wraps it up in verse 23 with a therefore. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. But then he says, as soon as I see how things go with me. As soon as I see how things go with me. And so we've got we to unwrap this. And we've got to recognize well, what's this seeing all about? Why do you have to see? I thought hope is the assurance of things. I thought faith was the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And so what's the problem with not seeing things? And why are you waiting to see something before you can apply something that you're hoping to do? Okay? And so that's why I want to stop under point four and really spell some things out. And it's kind of a long point. And what I did was I ended up taking a bunch of things that probably should have been subpoints. I just mashed them all together into one great big point. So I apologize. I probably should break that down. But let's leave it as it is for this morning. Let's understand Paul is doing what he's doing by faith. He has hopes 
But he's also walking by faith, and he's also waiting. And he's waiting to see clearly. And that becomes significant as well. Because faith is not, is not a substitute for knowing what you're doing. All right? And I'm going to be clear on that. We're going to make that very clear before we leave here this morning. So here's the point. Faith equips the believer to operate, hopefully, apart from seeing. And there's going to be a season for that. There's going to be a time for that. So faith equips the believer to operate hopefully. And we operate hopefully. For example, my hope for student housing someday. I have a hope. And we're not there yet, but it's still a hope. All right? And uh, it's, it's important that we, in, we recognize the process that this, this happens because we're not abandoning faith while we hope. Faith is what allows us to hope even while we don't see it yet. Right? Does that make sense? And so we still, we hope until we see it. Now, when we see it, we stop hoping because it's here. One way or the other, it's here. Either answered yes or answered no or answered something else, but we stop hoping once we see it. We don't keep hoping once it's arrived. We don't keep hoping once, it, once it's here, once it's a reality. It's still faith, but it's no longer hope at that point. And we're going to show you these passages. So faith equips the believer to operate, hopefully, apart from seeing. And then we're going to move on beyond that. In fact, let's stop there and let's look at these verses. Romans 8, 24. Because this is an illustration of where Paul is at the moment. He's still in the hoping stage, hoping to send Timothy shortly. And he's waiting to see what he needs to see before he can then proceed on a faith basis. Romans 8, 24. And this, of course, has a larger context surrounding it as well with respect to the days to come and the... the, uh, difficulties of what it is to be a a fallen creature in a fallen world. Uh, Really, I mean, goodness. Uh, Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there's the right here and now, and then there's the coming glory. That's the context, okay? And the right here and now has some sufferings with it. The right here and now is fallen bodies in a fallen world. The right here and now has some difficulties, but we're hoping, we're looking forward. There's, there's a day coming. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. How gracious of our Father to not just assign judicial wrath upon Adam personally, but corporately to everything Adam was responsible for in his federal headship, including Eve, her eyes were opened when Adam ate, including their descendants, all of humanity in Adam were condemned when Adam ate, and including the creation. The creation itself over which Adam was given dominion, animals, plants, the, the creative realm was placed in this futility because of the grace of God. What a, what a marvelous thing. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, we also groan. And, and far more than creation, right? Creation groans. We see volcanoes exploding and other things are happening. It's a fallen world. 
But you and I have a taste. We've got an appetizer. We've got a, a foreshadowing of what that new creation is all about. In our salvation, we're already new, a new creation in Christ. And we have already now the, a taste of the powers to come. Called here first fruits. The first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The final piece of the puzzle. When we got saved, our souls were saved, our spirits were made alive, and nothing whatsoever happened to our physical body. <laughs> okay, We still have this body of death that we had when we were unbelievers. We have this body of death, and we're ready to get rid of this body of death. This body doesn't suffer with the seasonal allergies, doesn't get the congestion, doesn't get the... Uh, you know, the, the cataracts doesn't get all the other things, okay? And I know I'm ready. There's nobody in this room that, that would not be happy to have that resurrection body today, right here, right now, and that trumpet sounds, and we cast off mortality and put on our immortality. What a delight. And so we groan. We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, here's the main point, though. For in hope... We have been saved. In hope, we have been saved. See, God was so brilliant in giving us a present salvation, yet with a hope to look forward to. With a hope to look forward to. So we keep our eyes fixed where they need to be. But hope that is seen is not hope. Well, duh. For who hopes for what he already sees? You know, that's like hoping uh, for something that's already passed, you know. I hope, uh, you know, I hope I win that big lottery two months ago that was like $500 million. Well, it's a dumb thing to hope for because it's passed, it's over, it's done with. Somebody in New Jersey won the thing. I mean, who in New Jersey needs that, okay? Wait, Georgian goes to New Jersey. All right. <laughs> But if you see it, then it's not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And, and faith is the mechanism that allows that to happen. Faith is the mechanism that allows us to hope. Again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now along with this, we also have 2 Corinthians. Let's look at these. 2 Corinthians 4.18. You know, hoping for something in the past. How ridiculous is that? I'm kind of reliving my past this month. I've been writing uh, little memoirs of, of uh, May of 1990 and putting little snippets on my Facebook wall or whatever because the calendar matches up. This year matches up with 1990. And so uh, this past, uh, you know, with, uh, when the Lord first brought me to Austin Bible Church, when I first met Pastor Ralph, when I first met Sharon, when I first met Shirley Newton, when all these other things are happening. So um, we're coming up on, uh, you know, the, the Sunday that I proposed, for example, okay? And it didn't take long. I mean, I figured out real quickly. I said, she's the only single girl in the church. I, gotta, I can't let that sit there. And, uh, you know, but the whole idea... Of, of hope, well, I hope she says yes, okay? Well, it was 27, 28 years ago, so it's kind of, you don't hope for that anymore. It's over, it's done with, see? Again, there's so many other ways you could illustrate this. Why do you hope for something that 
you already see, and it's already clear. Hope is forward-looking. All right, 2 Corinthians 4.18. Now these things are from God. Oh, wrong chapter. 4, there we go. Verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so our Christian walk suits us. We're equipped to be able to operate in the physical realm and operate in the spiritual realm. That we have earthly eyes, we have spiritual eyes, we have earthly bodies and that decay, but there's an inner man that doesn't decay. There's, there's the outer man that does decay. And, and the older it gets, the more worn out it gets, the more wrinkles it gets. All right? But the inner man gets more beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. The, the longer it's in the Word of God, the longer it's transformed, the longer it's conformed to the image of Christ, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And, uh, there, and there it is. And so it says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen. So this is uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18. We look at the invisible. Well, how do, you, how do you look at the invisible? You use your spiritual eyes to look at the invisible. That's how you do it. But, no, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. All right, so your physical eyes can see the physical. Your spiritual eyes can see the spiritual. And your spiritual eyes don't get cataracts. <laughs> or they shouldn't, all right? You want to keep them in good health. They're being renewed day by day. Okay, The outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. All right. I'm probably going to say that word ten more times between now and the end of the month. I'm getting nervous. And uh, the surgery is supposed to be routine. But uh, just pray. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's 2 Corinthians 4. How about 5-7? We walk by faith, not by sight. Hello? See? That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. And so the things that we see in the physical realm, we've got to stop and not allow ourselves to be slaves to what we're looking at, okay? Because we're looking at the wrong thing. So we get discouraged. We get discouraged by earthly things. And we're not supposed to be looking at the earthly things. All right? So we have a work assignment in front of us. We walk by faith. We're going to walk with our spiritual eyes open. We're going to be looking to our Lord. We're going to be looking to the one who provides all things. Instead of looking at ourselves and looking around and looking at our, our pocketbook and seeing our banking account and say, well, I can't afford that, or I don't have any people for that, or I can't do that. And so you start looking at earthly things, and there's a whole lot of discouragement everywhere. But you keep looking at the Lord, and there's all kinds of encouragement, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so uh, that becomes significant as well. And then, of course, I've cited it several times already, Hebrews 11.1. 1. What is this faith all about? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so there's a reality connected to faith. Right? Faith, don't let the unbeliever define faith for you. Don't let the unbeliever, would they love to do it, and particularly in our postmodern world, but the modern world, the postmodern world, the uh, they just love to do it. They've defined, they've defined epistemology in their own terms. And they've so weakened the, the concept of faith or believing that it's not even a biblical definition. 
they view believing as something that's inferior to knowing. They say that believing is not epistemological. Believing is not objective. Believing is not reality. And so when you talk about what you believe, they'll mock you and say, well, you believe that, but I know this. Okay? And they'll, they'll, they'll view that as, as you're inferior because all you can do is believe. We're superior because we know what we know. And we know because of science. That's constantly changing, but that's another topic, all right? And so you know what you know today until science changes tomorrow, and then maybe you'll know something different, all right? And whatever you think you know based upon whatever, okay? So don't let them get away with it. Don't, don't let them get away with, well, gnosis and epinosis, and we know these things, and then, and then they'll try to tell you that when you reach the limit of what you know, then you just have to kind of jump off blindly and just believe after that. Because you can't know, you just believe after that as an inferior knowledge. And that is not the biblical definitions. Not at all. Faith equips us to have confidence in what we know, what we're persuaded in. Nobody believes nothing, biblically speaking. When you apply pisteo, pistuo, you are putting your faith in an object. And if nothing else, it's in God personally. And then it's in what he said. It's the promises from his word. And so I don't see it yet. I'm still hoping and I'm walking by faith, not by sight. And I'm not at all concerned with my ignorance. I'm fine with my ignorance because I've got my eyes fixed on Jesus and he knows everything. He knows it all. And so my faith is not deficient to this other atheist uh, knowledge as far as that goes. So, it's assurance, it's substance, it's conviction of things not seen. And so for the first part of this verse, this is what we're looking at now. Faith equips the believer to operate hopefully apart from seeing. And we're fine with that. We're fine with that as far as it goes and as long as he wants to keep us in that, in that suspense, right? And maybe he wants us to keep us in that suspense for a week, for a month, for a year, Sarah waited 90 years to have her baby. How long are we going to be held in suspense? Well, as long as he wants to hold us in suspense. That's his good pleasure. And the longer he delays, that's his good pleasure. We don't stop walking by faith. Faith equips us to see what we can't see. And so we just keep hoping. Now, what else is faith? Let's add to that. Here's another definition of faith. What, how, do, how do I get faith? If I'm weak in faith, how do I strengthen it? If I'm deficient, how do I get more? Where can faith come from? Is it, is it in my pocket? Is it in, you know, it's, it comes from the Word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. Romans 10, 17. Someone says, Pastor, I realize I'm struggling with my faith right now. I say, well, you need more doctrine. You need to be in the Word more. You need to get grounded because faith, where does it come from? Faith comes by Hearing. So sit down, humble yourself, listen to the voice of your shepherd, and watch what he does as he strengthens your faith. Okay? And it's the Word of God itself overall. So, uh, Romans 10, 17. And we can back up slightly and see. Uh, verse 14, or even verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
If no one ever preaches Jesus, how do you call on Jesus? How do you believe if you don't know the name? You've got to have information in order to trust. You've got to be persuaded, patho, in order to believe, pistuo. So how will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? See, there's no such thing as blind faith and just believing in nothing. And just, well, you know, I don't know, so I'll just believe. Okay? Well, you know God, don't you? He's, he's revealed himself. He's spoken. Listen to him. Faith comes by hearing. And we're talking about knowing God. We're talking about the whole counsel of the Word of God. Okay? We're not going to try to use the Bible like a spell book. We're not going to try to use the Bible like a phone book. We're not going to try to, to target our faith with uh, whatever. You know, saying, ooh, I've got a I've got a temper problem. I need verses on patience. Or, oh, I've got an anger problem. I need, I need verses on whatever. Oh, I've got a lust problem. I need verses on whatever. And so we all have lots of problems. What we need are not targeted verses that kind of doctor and, you know, particular maladies. We want the whole counsel of the Word of God, the meat from the Word of God to build us up. If we're stronger in our, in our faith, then... God working through us is going to deal with all those maladies, see. Rather than just trying to be a, put band-aids on all these, you know, flaws. Let's grow. Let's get stronger overall in the Lord and let the flaws handle themselves. All right. So, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? You cannot exercise pistuo until you hear the content, until you hear the object of your faith. How will they hear without a preacher? Now God can do, he can leave Gideon Bibles in drawers and he can, you know, but it's still going to be the word of God that produces the faith. And more often than not, it's going to be an agent. It's going to be a person. It's going to be a tool in God's hands. It's going to be a brother or sister in Christ speaking the truth in love. How will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Anyway, this is uh, what we deal with. However, they did not all heed the good news. You could have a thousand beautiful feet, (laughs) right? 500 or so evangelists. Whatever. Their feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They're speaking the truth in love. But you still have to receive it and respond to it. They did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Hearing by the word of Christ. So this, uh, this becomes significant as well. So as long as we're walking in a hope, looking forward, we're hoping, we're hoping, we're hoping. Faith then allows us to see what we can't see yet. And we just keep hoping. But faith comes from hearing. And the way I put it on the point, faith is a response to doctrinal clarity. Faith is a response to doctrinal clarity. At some point, Paul's going to receive clarity on his circumstances. He's going to receive clarity on the ministry in Ephesus. He's going to receive clarity on the ministry in, in, in Philippi. And when he receives that clarity, he will then, in faith, send Timothy to Philippi. But not until. Not until. He's waiting until. 
He's waiting until. Faith is a response to doctrinal clarity, removing all doubt. Removing all doubt. Let's look at Romans 14 next. Here's another faith passage. Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. Removing all doubt. See, if you're in a hoping stage, you're walking by faith, you're waiting for that to be made clear, and it's not made clear, and you just give up on God and just hope for the best, (laughs) that's doubting. Okay? That's doubting. And the Bible says that's sin. Don't, how dare you? Keep waiting. Keep waiting. And so um, Romans 14 shows us this. Verse 22, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. What's wrong with you, Paul? Aren't you an apostle? Do what you want to do. You're the authority. No. He's, uh, He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He can only go where Jesus sends him. And if he's prevented, he's prevented. He's not going to defy the Lord by trying to open a door that Jesus hasn't opened yet. I'm reading the wrong chapter. Let me get back to chapter 14. That was chapter 15 and 22. Here we go. 14, 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. So you're hoping, you're hoping, you're waiting, you're listening, you're asking for the Father to provide your faith, and then He supplies it. And when He supplies it, when the Word of God supplies it, when it becomes your possession of faith, it's your conviction before God. Man, what a, what a blessing. Thank you, Lord. That's my answer. That's my conviction. I'm no longer in a, a sense of suspense. I'm no longer in a, in a pending wait-and-see mode. I've now been brought to the point of conviction. So the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So with that conviction comes the dokimazo approval. We've been studying that. Timothy is the approved workman that Paul can send to Philippi. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. And then you can relax after that. Why? Because you search the Scriptures. You've, you've demonstrated these things or so. You've come to a conviction. You said, hey, I'm, I'm good with this. This is what the Lord has for me. This is the town I'm supposed to move to. This is the job I'm supposed to take. This is the woman I'm supposed to marry. This is the church I'm supposed to attend. Or, or whatever the thing I've been wrestling with. I have finally come to that point of conviction. I have heard the voice of the Lord. I have been convicted by the Scriptures. It is clear. I have clarity. And not only do I have clarity, I have conviction. And with that clarity, with that conviction comes happiness, contentment. Wow. Okay? And a tremendous happiness, the Makarios happiness, that comes with that. So that when, uh, when you know, the naysayers come along and say, oh, that's stupid, you don't want to do that. Just laugh at them. So are you kidding? Oh, this is an answer to prayer. This, this came as, as I was in Bible class. This came as my pastor and I were praying about this. This came and I see it, my deacons see it, and my wife sees it. We have like-mindedness about this. All right? This is, this is an open door from the Lord. And so you, there's a happiness that comes with that. You never have to second guess. You never, and, and in the coming years, you don't have to go back with hindsight and wonder, ooh, was that a mistake? 
Because Satan, if he, can't, if he can't beat you up ahead of time, he likes to beat you up after the fact and get you to start second-guessing yourself and start convincing, ooh, you know what? I think I married the wrong girl. Okay? Well, too late now. You married her. All right? So here you go. But see, just don't even listen to those, those nattering voices. When you're walking by faith and when, you're, when, you're, when you have that conviction and the little doubt comes in later on, just take that thought captive and say, no, Satan, go away. I walked by faith and that's the way the Lord led me. And so quit your lies. That's the way the Lord led me. And if, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, the Lord himself. I mean, I'm, wa- I'm walking with him, right? So I have a conviction, I have a contentment, I have a happiness, and I don't have condemnation. He does not condemn himself in what he approves. Does not condemn himself in what he approves. And so this is useful too when you're walking by faith, when particularly if you're surrounded with some legalists and whatever, and they try telling you, ooh, you know, how dare you? You can't do that. You can't, that's a sin. You can't do that. You can't, you know, they try to tell you what you can drink or what you can eat or whatever the kind of movies you can watch or whatever. I don't know. They, they want to be your judge and run your life for you. And then you say, hey, wait a minute, back off. You know, I don't answer to you. I answer to, the, to God. And in His Word, His Word made clear to me, I've got liberty, I've got freedom, and I'm going to glorify Jesus Christ. See? And this person says, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. Dancing is sinful. But I'm dancing with my wife. It's still sinful. What? All right. Show me the scriptures. (laughs) Show me the verse. Show me what you're talking about here. Okay? Or drinking. Okay? Now, drunkenness, I'm with you. That's a sin. But drinking? A single drink in moderation? Jesus drank in moderation. He never sinned. Anyway, there's more discussions you can have there. But as you have these discussions, and as you go through these doubtful things, remember, there will be brothers and sisters on the other side of that equation. And they're going to stumble. And they're going to have issues. They're going to have hang-ups, okay? So we want to be gracious towards them, and hopefully they'll be gracious towards us in uh, whatever these issues happen to be. But uh, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what a, what a thrill. Now, if we don't, here's the thing. When you fail to apply verse 22, then you're stuck in verse 23. And I don't want anybody here stuck in verse 23. It says, but he who doubts... He who doubts. And the problem with doubting is that you stopped too short. You stopped hoping. You stopped walking by faith. And you just made a choice without a conviction. You made a choice without an answer. You made a choice and you just because you just said, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of asking. And so, well, that's long enough, God. I've got to do something now. And so you stop waiting, you stop asking, you stop hoping, you stop walking by faith. And even though you're under doubt, you just do what you want to do. And you're condemned. This verse says, he who doubts is condemned. Because his eating, or whatever the issue is, his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. You you didn't wait to get your answer. Right? You didn't wait to get your answer. Here's, you know, Abraham and Sarah stopped waiting, stopped hoping, took matters into their own hands, and Sarah said, here's my Egyptian maid. You can have a baby with her. 
they, they stopped waiting. They stopped hoping. And of course, Abraham, knucklehead, you know, I've read the text. It doesn't seem like she twisted his arm very hard <laughs> at all. She comes up with the idea and he goes, okay. I think Hagar was pregnant that night. I think the conception was just boom, okay? And it's not faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So we've got things we're praying about right now. Student housing, for example, is one of the items or other things that we're praying about right now. And we're waiting to see answers. We're waiting to see answers. We've seen some answers. We've seen some some answers. We haven't seen everything. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to doubt? Are we just going to proceed forward in our ignorance and wish for the best? Because at that point, we've abandoned any biblical definition of hope. We've abandoned any biblical definition of faith. We've abandoned any biblical definition of staying in the will of God. We're just putting ourselves in that position as Polish mind detectors. Have I told you that one before? Do you know what a Polish mind detector is? You just close your eyes, you put your fingers in your ears, and you stomp. Okay? Oh. No mind there. All right. Anyway. See, I didn't grow up in Texas. We didn't have Aggie jokes. I, I grew up in Washington. We had Polak jokes. Nowadays, it's probably racist or whatever. I don't know. But how many Christians are doing that? How many Christians, instead of walking by faith, are just closing their eyes, putting their fingers in their ear, and stomping, hoping there's no mind there? Ah, okay, I'm safe. <laughs> That's no way to walk in the Christian walk. That's not what He's designed us for. We're yoked to Jesus Christ. We're, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're walking by faith. And if He is choosing to not make it clear today, then we keep doing the same thing tomorrow. We keep doing the same thing the day after that. And we're not going to stop. Why would we stop? Until he makes his will known. So, um, faith is a response to doctrinal clarity, removing all doubt. As soon as I see... Now, this is a phrase here from Philippians 2, where it says, um, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. As soon as I see... As soon as I see, uh, how things go with me. Okay, so as soon as I see, in other words, it's it's the decisions already made. Indicates Paul's decisions already made, pending a last moment adjustment, as per the will of Jesus Christ. So just as soon as I see, I'm going to send Timothy. Unless, of course, something changes and God shows him something else. And then what do we do? We humble ourselves and say, thank you, Father. We'll do what you want, not what I want. Okay? David wanted to build a temple. And he went to bed that night thinking he was going to do it. Until a dream comes to the prophet Nathan and says, go tell David not to do that. That's not for you to do. And so Nathan, the prophet, comes back in the next morning and says, you know, that, that talk we had last night, I told you it was a great idea. Um, stop. Okay? I thought it was a great idea, but I went to bed last night and then God came to me in a dream 
and uh, says, you can't build the temple. Your son Solomon is going to build the temple. You're a man of war. Your son will be a man of peace. And you've got, you've got to portray the doctrine there properly in typology for Israel's eschatology. You can't build the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. Okay? And this, by the way, this is a positive thing. This is, thank God that he, he directs our lives this way. That, that we go to bed thinking this is what we're going to do in the morning, but we've given it to him so he's free to overrule us and say, Father, this is my plan, and if it's not right, let me know. You know? Say, Father, I want to marry that girl, but if that's not your will, then make that clear. Make it clear to her, make it clear to me. Let her say no. You know, it's going to crush me, but I'll, I'll get over that. Whatever, uh, whatever you want, Father. Because if she's not my right woman, then I don't want her. Okay? You got something better. Are we willing to say those kind of prayers? And then if we say those prayers and he takes it away, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Say, man, thank you, Father. I was on the verge of making a bad mistake there and you kept me from going there. Thank you. Closing that door. And it hurts because, Father, I really wanted to. (laughs) But I meant it when I said, if it's not your will, then close that door. All right. And so we get these last moment adjustments. I think seeing how these things, now it's curious to me, as soon as I see how these things go with me, there's, um, there's a lot of different words for seeing. And this one is so unique, it only shows up three times. And it only shows up uh, twice in the New Testament, once in the Septuagint. I think that's curious. Um, but this is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith in Hebrews 12 too. That's the kind of seeing that Paul wants. He wants uh, to fix his eyes on the will of God. He wants to see everything. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Understand? That means we're dumping all this other stuff. We're dumping it. We're dumping it. We're ready to go at a moment's notice. Father, we're asking for your will to be done. And when the answer comes, we're ready to go, Father, because we've already unloaded all this other garbage on these encumbrances. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so that fixing our eyes on, that's the verb. That's the verb Paul uses in Philippians 2 when he says, as soon as I see, as soon as I fix my eyes on what the Lord has for me, I'm going to send Timothy. In the Septuagint, it's Jonah. (laughs) The passage that makes me laugh. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Right? Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And so... um, You would think at the end of chapter 3 with Nineveh repenting that uh, Jonah would give God the glory and live happily ever after. But no, they greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Here's Jonah being the biggest I told you so in the history of the Bible, telling God I told you so. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. He got on the boat for Tarshish trying to thwart the plan of God, trying to thwart the will of God. 
In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. We would view that as a good thing. Jonah hated it. He was happy to be himself saved, but he didn't want those nasty Assyrians to get saved. The capital city of Assyria was Nineveh. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He was suicidal again. I think when he threw himself overboard, he was suicidal. That was an attempt to die. If he could have killed himself, then he couldn't have gone to Nineveh, could he? Well, God could have put him back in physical life and sent him anyway. But So uh, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. He made a shelter for himself and sat under the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. That's our verb again. Isn't that interesting? So the idea of getting a panorama view, the idea of just seeing the totality of all of everything, fixing our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Nineveh, fixing our eyes on Timothy, or whatever it is, that we want to see it and we want to see it comprehensively. We want to see it and see it completely, see it totally, so that we can proceed on a faith basis, so we can have the clarity of faith, we can have the conviction of faith, that we can be fellow workers volitionally with God, knowing what we're doing and why we're doing it. That's the privilege of the church age. The privilege of the church age is, is uh, not being a slave, but being a son, an adult son. It's a fellow worker with the Father, seeing what it is that the Father would have for us. And until He makes it clear, we're not moving forward. We're going to sit right where we are. We're going to sit and we're going to wait until He makes it clear. We're going to stand fast and we're going to see. And maybe... It gets scary. <laughs> Maybe, you know, we're at the Red Sea and we can't turn left, we can't turn right, and there's Egyptians coming from behind us and uh, we're going to stand fast and watch the salvation of the Lord. See, because until He makes His will known, we're not going to proceed. We're not going to proceed on a doubt basis. If we can't proceed on a faith basis, then we're not going to proceed on a doubt basis. I hope that makes sense because this is, this is the personal application that all of us have to be making. This is an application for Lewis and Ann as they seek ministry. You know, how much longer is he in training? When will the Lord give him a pulpit? It's the, it's the same application that Bill and Deb Kelly are making for their housing arrangements. It's the, uh, and so, you know, while we're praying for our side of things on providing student housing, meanwhile, they're praying on their end of things for, for their own housing, where they're going to live. Because if we don't provide it, what are, what are they going to do? Say, they can't, they can't do the, the Polish mind detector routine and glorify Jesus Christ. They can, they've got to walk by faith, just as we're walking by faith. But the neat thing is we're doing this together. That's the best thing of all. All right, then, point five, even before Timothy's mission, even before Timothy's mission, Paul considered it necessary to return Epaphroditus to Philippi. Even before Timothy's mission, there's something he can't wait for, and it's a necessity. 
Let me get back to uh, verses 25 through 30 now. Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now here is described as a past completed action, likely because Epaphroditus is the courier that's carrying the, the scroll that these words are written on. That is not uh, that uh, Tychicus is the, is the courier that carries Colossians and carries Philemon because he's headed east from Ephesus would take you to Colossae. But Epaphroditus is the courier that's carrying the letter to Philippi, see. And I think that's huge. Otherwise, Tychicus could have carried all of them. If Paul was writing from Rome, he could have stopped in Philippi and dropped off Philippians. He could have stopped in Ephesus and dropped off Ephesians. He could have stopped in Colossae and dropped off Colossians and Philemon. But instead, Tychicus is sent to, to take Colossians and Philemon, while Epaphroditus is sent to carry Philippians, another point of argument for the Ephesus origin of this book. So I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And so it's necessary. Something can't wait. This book can't wait. He's under compulsion as he's under inspiration. And when the scroll is finished, it's going. It's going. Now, some things we've got to deal with here with Epaphroditus. You ever heard of Epaphroditus before? He's a hero. He's an absolute hero. And this is really the one place in the Bible we learn about him is in this chapter, in these early verses, and then later in the chapter. We learn some more things about him by the end of the book. But when we're told in verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Men like him. He is the standard. Paul holds him up in high regard and says, you know, anybody else that's like him is going to be Epaphroditus-like. <laughs> okay? That's, that's the compliment. Men like Epaphroditus because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And so we have a real hero here we want to deal with. Now this verse in verse 25 where he says, I thought it necessary. Again, it speaks to the have-tos. It speaks to the obligations. It speaks to circumstances that are beyond our control under a compulsion, as it were. But he doesn't really describe why it's necessary. He just thought it so. And look at these descriptions. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister to my need. This is a powerful verse just all by itself. You know, if, uh, does he do some at the end of the book too, probably? Um, we get a little bit more about Epaphroditus at the end of the book. We get a little bit more. Well, there aren't so many. The saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. There's not many more. Um, tell you what, let's look, we got time. Let's look at uh, Romans. Romans has a ton of these. Romans 15. Or Romans 16. Yeah, let's look at Romans 16. We've got a ton of these here in Romans 16. As long as I'm taking a side trip, let's take a long side trip. But just notice. 
Uh, starting in verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Okay? One statement, fellow workers, who for my life risked their own necks. So they had a sacrificial uh, life-endangering ministry like Epaphroditus did. To whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. There's a whole lot of churches that owe those two people, a husband and wife tandem, they owe them an awful lot. Okay. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who's the first convert to Christ from Asia. So it's called my beloved, and he is the first to get saved in Asia. Two descriptions. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. One description. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles who are in Christ before me. That's a very long verse, isn't it? It's got four descriptions. My kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, outstanding among the apostles, they were in Christ before me. Uh, Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. One description. Beloved in the Lord. Urbanus, one description. He's a fellow worker in Christ. Stacus, one description. My beloved. Apelles, one description, the approved in Christ. Uh, verse 11, Herodion, my kinsman, just one description. The household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphenea and Tryphosa, probably sisters, workers in the Lord. Just one description. Workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. Two descriptions. Greet Rufus. Oh, I love Rufus. I just like the name, Rufus. There was a Rufus Street over in our old church neighborhood. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Boy, there's a story there. I want to learn that. We don't have any clue. That's the only clue we have anywhere in the Bible. Who was his mother and mine? Who is his mother and mine? Makes me wonder. All right. So needless to say, he and Rufus were close. (laughs) And then all these other guys um, with hard to pronounce names. Ah, Syncretus. (laughs) You just wonder. Ah, Syncretus. Like unsynchronized, right? Ah, Syncretus. Like he never could put it together. I don't know. Asyncretus. Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren with them. In fact, there's no description of them at all. It's just a crowd of guys that he wanted to say hi to. Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. All right. So in that whole list, and there's, there's nothing like this chapter in all the Bible, There are more greetings in this chapter than anywhere else. And in most cases, we have one description, sometimes two. Very rare. There's only one that we had four. Okay. But with uh, Epaphroditus, we have five. There is a pentad of descriptions on Epaphroditus. There are five items here that he talks about for Epaphroditus. 
So he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, when you look at these, notice those five are broken down into kind of two categories. My, 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 your, your. So pay attention to the pronouns. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your apostle, messenger, and your liturgical priest, minister, to my need. Five descriptions. And Wednesday night we're going to tackle these. Wednesday night we're going to go through these. And we're going to show you really the impact. Why is he called an apostle? Why is he called a, a liturgos servant minister? And uh, why are three of them mine and two of them are yours? How does this relate? It's actually, it gives kind of a nice backdrop for the, the authorship of the book and the circumstances of that and uh, the return of Epaphroditus. Because not only is he sending them him to them, but he's sending him back to where he came from. He came from them. He was one of theirs. And now he's sending him back to have uh, the ministry there that he could have with Paul. So those sort of things um, are useful. And particularly because we are a training ministry ourselves. We train men, we train women, and we send them. And sometimes they go back to where they came from, and sometimes they go somewhere else. Okay? And uh, and those things are blessings as well. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for sustaining my voice. I pray that you would do so again next hour. Also, uh, two sessions this evening and a deacon's meeting in between. So it's a long day, Father, but your, uh, your grace is sufficient. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.